Welcome to Sentimental Garbage, a podcast where we talk about the chiclet that made us who we are. My name is Karen O'Donoghue and I am a novelist, a journalist and someone who spends a lot of her time reading about sexy people kissing. Today I've invited literary agent and writer Abigail Bergstrom to talk about the 2006 mega hit travel memoir Eat, Pray, Love. Abigail, thank you so much for coming. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I generally ask people at this juncture what made you choose this book, Um, but actually I made you choose this (laughs) I was like, oh. (laughs) I just texted you out of the blue to say, um, will you do this? And I did it because we went for dinner about a year ago Uh Yeah, and we were quite drunk on the tube home and uh, I don't (laughs) know. Sounds about right. (laughs) I don't know what brought it up but someone like one of us said Elizabeth Gilbert and then the other person just leaned in being like oh my god love her (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I think um, it's quite representative of Liz Gilbert and Eat Pray Love in that like it's become so much of a cliche that you can only bring it up when you're pissed and there's only two of you. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> Otherwise you feel a bit like, oh, I'm embarrassed. I should. Like like Jodie Pico, I feel like she's similar to that as well. Like I love Jodie Pico, but I feel like I'm not allowed to admit that to people. Is that how you pronounce her last name? Yeah. I was, I was always saying pickle. Oh, pickle. <laughs> <laughs> With a silent T. <laughs> I think the T is silence. You got the that tea. bit right. Or we're both wrong, in which case, I'm sorry, everybody. Um, so uh, many people already know the plot of Love, but I'm going to give a quick summary just for the uninitiated. So uh, this is actually the first memoir in the series that we've done so far. So Liz Gilbert is a journalist who, following a divorce, a breakup and a long depression, decides to go travelling for a year to Italy, India and Indonesia. And that's basically it. We, we learn about pleasure in Italy. We learn about spiritual enlightenment in India. India and we learn about Indonesia and Indonesia. Yeah, <laughs> balance. balance. Indonesia's about balance. Yeah. Um, so what is your experience of this book? Tell me a little bit about it. So I read this book um, when I I just graduated and I went, I kind of moved to Hong Kong and I was doing a little bit of traveling around Southeast Asia and mm-hmm. I was about to go to Bali, funnily enough. So I, I picked this book up and read it then. So I was actually sort of having a year out before I got my first job and, sure. you know, was was traveling. And, and what, yeah. what year was this? So how much of a cliche was he pray love already by Gosh. the time you read it? I mean, this was probably about eight years ago, mm-hmm. nine, nine years ago, maybe. So, yeah, I think it, it it just come out and there was a lot of hype around it. When when was it published? 2006. Okay. And then I think the movie with Julia Roberts came fairly quickly afterwards. So we're talking yeah. like the yeah late 2000s, early 2010s. That's the whole, that's the moment it's really raining. Yeah. About five years there. Yeah. So, yeah, this seems about right. I, yeah, I think it just, it just come out. And I kind of, I was kind of going through a breakup myself and mm-hmm. was kind of had removed myself from it and was, you know, really far away. And so, yeah, I think I just related to it on many, yeah. many levels, particularly the amount of pasta she eats in Italy. <laughs> um, so much. And she really doesn't mince with the pasta at all. Like, you really get to know that pasta. Yes. You some would say that the pasta is a second character of the book. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> totally. And the dough. The pizza dough? The dough. I always, whenever I see, if I find really good pizza, when she talks about like um, how the pizza was so good, it was almost like nan. Yes. And I always think about what must that be like? Like it's so light and yeah. so fluffy that it's like nan. Yeah. But it's pizza. Exactly. Like she thought it, pizza doughs could either be kind of thin and crunchy or like fat and doughy. She didn't realize they could be thin and doughy. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. I didn't know that either. Where do I get that? And she also describes like her physical body as being both thin and doughy, which is also something I relate to. Yeah. yeah. In that like far away, I appear like a thin woman, but actually there's a lot of... When you get a bit closer, it's good, like soft, all good dough over here. Yeah. Good swiggling dough. Yeah. <laughs> swiggling. Oh, good word. Uh, I I think I had a similar experience with this book. I haven't really done a lot of traveling mm. per se, but I had the thing of um, having a lot of audiobook credits and I had read Signature of All Things, which is her novel that mm. wasn't as successful as this, but is a really brilliant novel. But I was in, after a breakup and I, I heard that Eat, Love was the quintessential breakup memoir. And so I was like, you know what? I'm almost going to ironically listen to this in audiobook. And then cue two hours later and I'm just weeping on the train while this woman slowly coos me to, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> into, through my sorrow. Because like I really think, I think it's what people underestimate the most about this book is that... Yes, okay, she does all the traveling, she does all this eating, this praying or whatever, and she writes about it brilliantly. And it's because she writes about it brilliantly that that it's been sold so much. But the the very real sorrow at yeah. the beginning of this book, and it's a big chunk of the book, mm-hmm. is you really get to grips with how terribly sad this woman is. Yeah. 
uh, she's depressed. She's you know she's battling with depression and a very real depression. Yeah, and, and even you know in in no amount of traveling to you know can can ease that really. She goes to Italy and it follows her there, and it's something that she has to overcome herself. I think yeah. rather than through the art of, of of travel, but yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking but relatable in in the way that she talks about her pain in such kind of raw yeah. honesty. Because she has this, we meet her and she is um, on on the bathroom floor crying. Yes. And even saying on the bathroom, like, it's such a cliche in itself. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm crying on the bathroom floor. But, but like, it's so very real. And she's in this marriage she doesn't want to be anymore. And I think this bit, regardless of whether you've ever even left the country in your life. Yeah. This bit where she's like, you know, I met my husband. We agreed that our 20s would be crazy. And by 30, we would try for a baby. And all I want to do is just run to Greenland. Yeah. Because I don't want to have this baby. I don't want to live here. I don't yeah. want to be in this marriage. And I think everyone's had that thing of like, I don't think the woman I'm meant to be is the th- a woman I can be physically. I yeah. think it actually revolts me being this thing that people want me to be and whatever that thing is, you know? Definitely. And I love the bit where she kind of talks about, she looks around, she's like, I actively partook in the creation of this life. Yeah. I chose it. I held his hand and step by step, I I took all, you know, I took each step to creating this. It was what I wanted to. I was willful in it. Yeah, and yeah. now all of a sudden I've changed my mind, which I think is kind of, fascinating in terms of the framework that we put on women today and I think a lot of women maybe don't question that social framework they don't ask you know do I really want to get married what does that mean they don't ask themselves like do I really want a baby like what how will that affect my life and my identity and how you know my body and how I how I think I think sometimes we just do things because it's ingrained in us yeah um it's so kind of embedded that we forget to question it we just make this assumption and we go along with our lives and um, Elizabeth Gilbert feels like she's almost a culprit of that and and I think now more than ever today you know as women we have more choices more options and we are starting to question that and you know the whole refinery 29 thing not not when if in terms of having a baby you know and the way that we have dialogue around it whereas I guess in her time it wasn't if you have a baby, it was when. When you have a baby. and this is ten years ago. Like this is not. Yeah. This is like not the the eighties or even you know. No. Um, but then you know, there's always that thing of like, oh yeah, we're all about choices. We're all about career. A woman can do anything, but there's no. You can't outrun your own clock. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can't outrun the, the the fact that it will get harder after a certain age or whatever. Yeah. So we're just. I often feel and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I often feel that. So I'm 28, mm-hmm. and. How old are you? Uh, 30. 30. Great. Yeah. Um, and all the women I know in my life are achieving at their highest possible level all the time. I have, you know, playwright friends and author friends. And I don't worry about the only thing when I, if I'm ever worrying about them, it's that they're working too hard. Yeah. Most of my male friends aren't achieving to that <sighs> level and that's a, I'm, I'm not being mean, but yeah. they, aren't, they aren't achieving that level. And they also don't care, you know, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They're, they're like, yeah, it's OK, you know, life is long and, you know, whatever. And I think it's because women have this sense that, like, I have to do everything by the time I'm 35, 36, 37. So by the time I walk away from the table to have a baby and come back six months later. Yeah. Like, they'll have to have me, you know. Yeah. And I think with Liz Gilbert, you get the sense that she did achieve a huge amount. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, like her career... Like she, by the time she's 30, she's written three books. Yeah. She is a well-paid GQ and Esquire interviewer, features writer. She's been all over the world. She's a playwright. She's a playwright. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. It's like, she was very well-respected before Epire Love even happened. Yeah. Like, she was well-paid, a successful person. Totally. You know? Yeah. Um, I can't even remember what tangent I'm going on, but I think I just... <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of like, I'm, I was kind of, feel like I'm having an existential crisis since you talk about that, because, you know... I feel the same as 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 that, and when you know, I think about my female male friends as well, and I've kind of always been like rushing, 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 like do well, do well, achieve, achieve, ambition, ambition, like yeah. where's I'm my next step same. on the lad- yeah. ladder? And I've never ever once thought in my life that maybe on some conscious level that was because I've thought if I do want to have a family, you know, those things are going to be sacrificed or yeah. jeopardized or just maybe potentially slowed down. Um, purely because of the, you know, bi- biological and, and, and sometimes mental restrictions when you have a baby, I suppose, too. But, um, yeah, that is really fascinating. And, and like, <laughs> one of my favourite um, 
I think there's a lot of dialogue at the moment around women and whether or not they want to have children. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you read Sheila Haiti's book, Motherhood, where it's like the whole book is an internal monologue of her trying to decipher whether or not she wants to be a mother. Wow, it's that book has been recommended to me loads of times, but I never knew that was what was it about. Yeah. Because it yeah. looks very serious and I'm kind of like, meh. No. Sometime, you know? It's amazing. You're just wow. like trapped great. in her head and her kind of grappling with this and whether it is something she wants or isn't. But I love in the book that Elizabeth Gilbert's sister says to her, she's like, having a baby is like getting a tattoo on your head. Like you kind of have to be sure yeah <laughs> I think like I don't know it's uh, in, that, in that same chapter she says something like um I got so excited when I got a commission from an editor to go see jellyfish spawning in yes. Brazil and I couldn't feel even an iota of the same excitement about the prospect of having a baby literally and then she's like until I can feel as excited about a baby as like going all the way to see jellyfish then I probably shouldn't have one yeah and she talks about travel you know she says I, I feel the same way about travel as people do about their babies like I don't care she says in the book I don't um, I don't care if it's hard I don't care if it makes me cry or uh, som- sometimes like I'm really struggling I see myself in it and I love it and to me, traveling is like, you know, how yeah. a lot of my friends feel about their babies. That is, that is so true. Because it sounds like a weirdly facetious thing to say, because obviously they're very different things yeah, and all course. that. But like, actually, when you get down to it, yeah. it's there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of cliches around like, oh, my books are my babies, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in I a way, I also books. feel that way. It's a cliche, but there's, it's a cliche for a reason because I do find truth in it, yeah, you know? Yeah, I bet. I mean, yeah, I, I can imagine. And kind of birthing it, and, and then I always think of that na- analogy as well, when it kind of gets published and suddenly it's like your firstborn going off into the world and you're like, I have yeah. no control over that. I can't do it. You know, you're like, you're at God's will. Like, I can't do anything. It's, I know. I think it's a good analogy. Although I admit, yeah, very, very different it, Yeah, exactly. Um, what I find really interesting is that Liz Gilbert's entire career is almost the reverse of most, I'm going to say chiclet in inverted commas, authors. Mm-hmm. Um, because she started out uh, modeling herself on Hemingway and her whole thing was that she uh, wrote like a man, also in inverted commas, um, and that she would follow people on, uh, she would like befriend Colombian drug lords and like do, like look at manly men doing manly things. One of her first books, The the Last American Man, was just her following this like cowboy all around America. And uh, people really respected her because she wrote in this very lean, mas- masculine way. Wow, I didn't um, know that. Really, yeah. No. She wanted, she, like, people talk about, oh, why was she given this huge advance? She had w- been nominated for a National Book Award at 27, right. you know? Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. why she was That's given why. a huge advance. Yeah. Um, but then she became this global mega hit with Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah. And she was then considered a chiclet author, a woman's author. And she's been just released her, well, she's releasing her next novel mm-hmm. in June of this year. And that is literally a frothy novel about showgirls. Right. So she's kind of like, she started on this very masculine trajectory and then she went further into this like very feminine one. That's interesting. You know? I wonder whether that was out of choice or whether, you know, she's sort of been steered in that direction off yeah. the back of the success of Eat, Pray, Love. I think, yeah, I think it's like once you suddenly go to... Once you go from ha- go, having a book launch and or a book signing and maybe there's 30 people there and they saw a nice write-up in the New York Times of your book or whatever, yeah. to it's been in every magazine, there are queues out the door. Like People used to like go to New Jersey just to find her. Oh, yeah. She, yeah. yeah, there was a, you know, she moved so many people, I guess, that I don't... Like, like literally physically moved them, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I and I always, like, what what is it, do you think, that makes this book so special? Like, what is that je ne sais quoi that just made it resonate so much? I often, I mean, I suppose it's kind of a, maybe it's a personal question, it's different for everyone, but is there something universal in it that we all connected with? For me, this idea of, I guess, religion, you know, religion is a kind of very controversial and complicated thing, especially Mm -hmm. in America. And she created this idea that you could just cherry pick your religion you could just choose if you were born Catholic you decided that that wasn't right for you you weren't able to kind of find or connect with God there you could go and you could just try something else and you were allowed Mm -hmm. and free and able to do that and I think she was one of the first people to introduce that idea to me Um, the idea that I could just pick before that it would have felt disrespectful or on some level wrong and I think she um, changed people's minds on that maybe or just lifted her hand up and went but what if we just decide ourselves and choose. Mm. Um, and I think that is something that's really powerful about the book. Definitely. And I think what what she does with it is very 
clever because she she started out and it's a depressed lady and then she goes to Italy yeah. and that uh, Italy is the first stop on, on her whistle stop tour of the world yes and uh it's all stuff that's really easy to relate to because everybody likes food. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. if you don't like food, you're a knob. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And you just like get all these very incredibly graphic, sensual explanations of pasta and pastries and pizza and all these beautiful things. And everyone she meets is sort of sexy and fun. Yeah. And you're so there with her. And because like, maybe as Europeans as well, we've both been to Italy. Like most yeah. people we know have been to Italy. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. we kind of, we see it. We have a reference and we're kind of, we get very comfortable with that. And then she goes to India and she uses the exact same methods, the the, the detail, the sensualness, mm. the kind of the graphicness of everything, but talking about prayer and her relationship to God. Yeah. And because you're already with her, you're like, well, this is not really, you know, I don't generally read about this kind of thing, but I guess I'll keep reading. You get into you're thinking, in. you get yeah. sucked into thinking yeah. about your own relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what's what's your relationship with God? Yeah. In, oh, is that a yeah. question? I guess, oh. yeah. What is it? Wow. I don't... I, I guess I do subscribe to this idea that she presents, which is, you know, the idea of God being something that's inside us um, yeah. and something that's internal. And in, in building and growing that relationship, you look inwards. Um, yeah. I don't... Uh, <sighs> I guess my relationship with God... See, it's embarrassing to talk about, yeah, isn't it? It feels embarrassing. It does. It does feel embarrassing, yeah. Because I guess the kind of Western framework around talking about God doesn't really fit for me. But then there's something that's a bit kind of eye roll about yeah. the whole kind of spirituality of uh, and talking about God in that sense that, that, that we... So, it, yeah, it does. Yeah. It feels sticky. It feels sticky because it's controversial and it feels sticky because there's a lot of eye rolling around the type of God that she relates to, which is this, like, inner um, experience with herself that she finds through meditation and she mm-hmm. finds through devotion and she finds really from cutting herself off from the real world you know yeah. she leaves everything behind her she's in this ashram you know for three four months doesn't mm-hmm. leave or see anything else um which is a pretty extreme way to access yeah god as well i mean what, what's your relationship with god like um yeah it's it's definitely ch- changes a lot i mm-hmm. think because I, I grew up catholic and in ireland as mm-hmm. well and that's like a different kind of experience because my parents weren't particularly religious uh-huh. but everything in ireland is informed by the church in some kind of a trickle down way in that like it's kind of just part of everything yeah but all, you know it's it's a very hard thing to explain and uh I've only started thinking about like, oh, what what are my private terms with mm. God in the yeah. last few years? And again, I feel very uncomfortable thinking about it because I straight atheism just feels so arrogant. Yeah. You know, just to be like, well, obviously we're all just animals lumping around like yeah. fucking and eating. <laughs> like, I don't I just don't think I, I don't think I ever want to be that cynical to just think that. No. No, no. And um, the way that she talks about it in the book is that she, one of the lo- a lovely way of putting it, where she says, uh, I want to experience God like a river experiences sunlight on the top of, uh, like, like, like sunlight yeah. plays across a river kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, the dappling of the light da- on, yeah. the, on the river. And yeah, I want him to be in my veins. And yeah. 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 And she, she said something about like there's like and I I think I've borrowed this for several I think I've like literally plagiarized this <laughs> for like bits but like Amazing. she said something about I believe that there is a silver strand going through the universe that is connecting us somehow in some unspeakable way and I yeah. want to feel it more. Yeah. She just wants to feel God and it's yeah. such, it's such a weird thing for like a successful journalist lady from New York yeah. who like is quippy and fun. To just be that serious about. Yeah. And I I think that's the thing. She writes about, about it in a way where, I don't know, you don't eye roll. That, and that's the trick of it. Like you say, she draws you in from the beginning and then she goes on this like spiritual journey and you literally go along with her and you take it at face value. Like when she's, she's like, everything is God. Coral is God. Yeah. Flowers are God. You know, the clouds are God. I am also God, except I'm human. <laughs> so I've been blessed with the consciousness to be able yeah. to pursue and understand and have a relationship with and that's kind of it sounds exciting it does sound exciting and yeah. and you do so when she's in the ashram in India and she's very realistic about it she's like I feel like I'm she's like constantly trying to reach something it's like it's a, it almost reminds me of you know when like you're with a partner who you can't quite reach orgasm with <laughs> 
That's like, that's like almost, two months almost. of India. It's like yeah. almost, almost, but no. Yeah. <laughs> At the last minute, someone changes position and everything's weird. Totally. But also, you know, when you like get to that point, because she says like the ego and think when she gets these places, like I, saying I think or I want, like that that release of ego stops it. It's like when you're yes. having sex with somebody and you're like, oh no, it's happening, it's coming. It's like, oh no, it's not. Now I'm thinking about it. No, I've ruined it. No, it's not totally. now. <laughs> yeah, she like glimpses like divinity. Then she's like, yeah. and, and she's like, oh, I wanted to do more of this. And yeah. then she's like, and she's like, out of it. very weird. I want. I like that's yeah. it. it. I just feel myself being pulled back because it's like the resurfacing of her ego, of which like that there's no room for that to exist in divinity and in that experience yeah. of heaven through meditation. Right, and like I feel like if, if you're listening to this as, as a listener and you haven't read this book, you'll be like, "What the fuck is this book?" Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Because even like when um. And this kind of segues quite nicely into the reputation that this book has. Because before you got here, me and my producer Hannah and I were talking and she was like, is this book actually good? Because I only know it as a joke. Yeah. And I think that's how a lot of people know it. Yeah. Um, I think partly because the title of the book is so kind of weird and funny almost. Yeah. Because I think when, whenever anyone now does like a travel memoir, it's like, oh, eat, pray, shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's part of it. But like what you, I mean, you are a literary agent. You mm. worked in the book trade your entire life. Yeah. What do you think happened with this book, both in, in the boom of it and in the like the cultural joke of it? Um, I think when anything reaches that level of success, then it's you know prime ripe fodder for mockery and parody. And yeah. you know, I think that's true of like all like many different versions of. Um, art, I suppose. Um, why it really took off? Again, I think the way that, as I said earlier, kind of the way that she grappled with and talked about religion, I think was quite kind of, I don't know, not new, but relatable. It was yeah. relatable. She stopped you from eye rolling. Like you say, like she took you to Italy and she got you on board. And then before you know it, you're like, yeah, I should sit down and meditate for three hours and <laughs> yeah. connect with God. That feels like something that I could and should do. Yeah. But yeah, it's also books about heartbreak. I mean, that kind of, that deep sorrow. I mean, everybody has had their heart broken. Everybody had a David. Everybody. And even if, you know, even if you've broken your own heart, you know, even if your heart hasn't been broken by romantic love, it's been broken by a kind of, you know, career failure or something that you wanted to do that you didn't. Mm. Everyone understands what heartbreak it's like. And it's yeah. fucking horrific. And it is all consuming. And it takes over. And I think in this book... She is there with you. She is there with you. And she's, you know, you don't, you feel less alone, I guess, in that pain and sorrow. One of the things that really, really stayed with me from it was when she's with Richard from Texas. Richard from Texas. Who we have to come back to because I'm literally obsessed with Richard from Texas. Oh my God. But when he, yeah, and she's in India and he's like, come on, you need to focus on, you know, let go of David. Something about David, you need to focus on meeting with God, you need to focus on your meditation. Like, why are you making your life and everything you feel about him? And she's like, I love that I love him. And he's like, yeah, so so love him. So love him. So love him. And she's like, but I really miss him. And he's like, yeah, so, so miss him. It's like, miss him, Love him, feel all of those feelings, send them to him, and then think about something else. Oh, God. And just, like, this idea that you can still love and miss someone, even when you can't be with them or it hasn't worked out or you've caused each other intense pain, that you can still... that You don't need their permission. Yeah, right? You can just love them. It is it is a very powerful idea. It feels very Oprah, but when you're... Again, once you're in, in it... And Richard from Texas is this very interesting character who, um, just for listeners... Uh, when when Liz is in the ashram in India, she meets this Richard from Texas. Who yeah. I think she says at the beginning of the book, she, it is the only name in the book she hasn't changed because he wanted which, to be included. Which isn't true because Katut's name is Katut. Oh, really? Yeah, I always think, I think that both time I read it, she does say that. And I'm like, yeah. that's not true. Katut's called Katut. <laughs> I'm like, come on, Katut's right to privacy, I man. Know, my, my man. Um, but Richard from Texas, then, uh, he is just a sage. He's like a guy who's been divorced several times and he's got like. You know, he's had several different lives and now he's just doing yoga as a thing. And you and like he pops up on the first chapter of the India book. Yeah. And you're like, OK, this guy seems colorful. Richard's opening line is, Jesus, they've got mosquitoes around here big enough to rape a chicken. <laughs> and I, I think that epitomizes Richard. Right? Yeah. And, and when you're like, oh, he's going to be this colorful character that makes sure that I'm not too bored during these these meditation chapters. But yeah. then he becomes this like philosophical force. Yeah. Like, and that same bit that you were talking about, about like, oh, you know, I love him. So love him. I miss him. So miss him. Yeah. Um, he says to her, 
You're like, an old, and I've, I've felt this way so many times in my life, though. You're like an old dog at the dump who's just licking at an empty can when there's no nutrition left, and now you're going to get it stuck on your snout forever. Yeah. I was like, I have been that lady. Yeah. Like, <laughs> He's like, don't make your life a monument to David. And right? You're like, yeah. It's just, oh my God. So woke. Also, um, let's talk about Richard from Texas on Soulmates. <gasps> yes. Yes. Yes, yes. I think I, ha- I think I actually wrote it down. Um, this is when he's basically like, you're not meant to end up with your soulmates. Your soulmates are meant to come in. They're meant to break your ego, push down your boundaries, rip you apart and show you something about yourself. They're yeah. meant to teach you something. Like There's this kind of um, obsession with being with your soulmate. And he's just like, no, you're not meant to be with your soulmate. Your soulmates are sent to fuck soulmate your life Soulmate is a mirror. It's, they're a mirror. Yeah, they're yeah. a mirror. And they're meant to break you down and and then and in doing that you learn something about yourself which fundamentally changes the way that you live and that's like what they're sent to do and you like the person you end up with is you know somebody that you love but it's not a soulmate yeah and I just love that I, I think that's I like a fantastic so idea so true I, I think these like extreme loves or infatuation or the relationships that sometimes hurt us the most really cast us into something new and then when you're in a relationship kind of that's maybe meant to be, you know, more long term or somebody that m- might be a, a forever person, um, it's more like, you know, two puzzles coming together. Right. Where they slot in as opposed to a mirror where you're like, whoa, you're, re-, you know, that's I think that is it's so it makes so much sense to me kind yeah. of thing. Because, like, of course, you can't stay with someone whose job in life is to reflect your Unless you're like into self harm, like yeah, well he's like that's yeah, like to reflect the your, worst things about you. Totally, yeah, being with your soulmate is just painful. Why would you want that? Yeah, but oh, also, it's such a good. Isn't it interesting? Like the mirror, I, the mirror kind of idea because it's like you say, it's reflecting back the most kind of awful things about yourself. But also, it's like this infatuation is also with yourself. Like it's yeah. not just you falling in love with that person. It's like you falling in love with a version of you. It really is that. Which I think what, you know, that's what... Everyone's done that at least once, haven't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. Liz Gilbert is probably one of my favourite living writers. Yeah. Which is a big thing to say. I read a lot of fucking books. Yeah. Um, But even I, like, sometimes flip back and forth over... She can be a little bit cringy about herself, right? Mm -hmm. She can really do this thing where she's like... She'll go on these long explanations over how likable she is. Yeah. He's like, don't you understand? That doesn't make you likable yeah. <laughs> for you to talk about how naturally gregarious that you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then at the same time, she talks, she's like, listen, I can make friends with anyone. I'm not worried about going to Indonesia because I will have a best friend in 10 days. And you're like, okay, bitch. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and there's like, there's bits of, um, in a way, this is going to be a little bit out there, but like, Ibrahim almost acts as a mirror in itself in that there are so many times when I'm reading it, even though I love it as a book, where I feel uncomfortable, jealous, angry, or annoyed yeah. with literally Liz Gilbert herself. Yeah, I agree. Because there are things she's doing I want to do. Yeah. There are ways she is that I want to be. And also there are ways she is that I know I'm like and I wish I wasn't like. And it's like. ugly, that kind of... It is ugly. Yeah, that self-indulgence and that kind yeah. of... Yeah, everybody is cares and is interested in me and every yes. single tiny thought that crosses my mind. Yes. And I am the center of the universe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, I mean, dare I say it, but I'm gonna. It's like Carrie Bradshaw in like Sex yes. and the City. If you watch enough episodes in a row, then you're like, Jesus, Carrie, shut up. I not know. All bits about, not the whole world's about you, Carrie. Um, but yeah, I, I do see that. I do see that. But also, yeah. And there's this weird flip side to her. And I... I I, I really felt this where it was, um, you know, she talks about her, you know, like ability and her gregariousness and you're like, all right, queen. Um, but then she talks about the sort of flip side of that exact same quality, which is that she falls in love with people really quickly. And then like her, her friend says to her, you're like a dog. You start looking exactly like them. And she yeah. just basically subsumes her entire personality into men she meets, yeah. you know. And I was like, oh, God, yeah. that is me. Like, There's a bit I marked out that I have here. And I, I literally started cringing in my bones when I was reading. Um, Read it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I have a history of making decisions very quickly about men. I have always fallen in love fast and without measuring risks. I have a tendency not only to see the best in everyone, but to assume that everyone is emotionally capable of reaching his highest potential. I have fallen in love more times than I care to count with the highest potential of a man rather than with the man himself. And I have hung on to that relationship for a long time, sometimes far too long, waiting for the man to ascend to his own greatness. Many times in romance, I have been victim of my own optimism. Oh. And I was like, oh God, there's so many people who I've stayed with for so long. I've been like, oh, but like, don't you think he could be a great writer one day? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you, so you see yourself in that, that you've done that, you mean? Yeah. That you've like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I completely. And, I, and I, But I think that's a, it's a real, like I don't feel the Liz, the Liz Gilbert now today does that. No. Yeah. Like that's the whole, that's her whole journey, isn't it? That it, she has to be able to be on her own and be enough in order for them when she, you know, as cliche as that is, in order for them when she meets somebody to be like, actually, no, you're not really what I'm after right now or you're not yeah. really good enough. But that idea of a man, you know, giving a man space to rise to his highest potential. Do you think that's something that's been ingrained in yes. mainstream media and the happily ever after where we're like, it'll all come good in the end. Yes. You know, Mr. Big will show up and propose and <laughs> But you know. I think this is a phrase that I've seen a lot sort of online, but that whole thing of like women as daycare centers for unreliable men. Yeah. So sort I of think like that like and I, I've actually I had this argument with my mother a lot because I've got two older brothers and whenever they've had like, you know, pretty wild years in their lives or whatever or things weren't going well for them it'll always come down to if he just met someone or you know and if he he just met a girl who was a bit like this and a bit like this and I've always sort of had this argument with her where it's like no like we it's not other women's jobs to fix your sons like they need to fix themselves fix the mall within you know and I think that is a weird conversation that we have around men where like we're supposed we actually said it on this podcast before but we're supposed to like invent them as women you know yeah 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 yeah. And, and, and nurture that as well I think I find with my female friends, so many of them are so much more emotionally developed than Mm -hmm. my male friends. Yeah. Um, I do see, you know, not to generalize, but within my friendship group, I do see a real disconnect there. And I think it's as a single woman, it's Mm -hmm. fucking hard in this day and age (laughs) to find a man who is kind of really in touch with himself and has like done the work done the work on himself like figured out what his shit is what his demons are like what's in that you know young shadow and unpick it and so many of them just haven't um, yeah. compared to my female friends who I feel like every day are like grinding and they've got the <laughs> toolkits out and they're like <laughs> chipping away at it. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And I and I think that maybe that again is part of, you know, the outcome of patriarchal culture and just the everything that a man sees mirrored back at him is that he's, you know, perfect and ready and ideal, again, to use the Carrie and Big metaphor, is Carrie the one that's like got all the problems and the issues and is a nightmare and mm-hmm. Big's mm-hmm. just big with a big shot job, like loving his life. Yeah, like, you can change Big. Yeah. No, Big's big. He's set in stone. <laughs> and it's like, you know, maybe men aren't being presented this idea that they need to go on this kind of... I think they are only very recently yeah. and that's why so many of them are jarred by it. Now, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think, yeah, you're entirely, entirely right that, may, that now I think specifically because of the rise of feminism and the questioning around the role of yeah. masculinity and men's, men, you know, toxic masculinity and the awful impact that that's had on men. Yeah. Maybe now it kind of, that is starting to happen more. Yeah, and, and, and for the most part, I mean, it, I think a lot of men sort of act like what women are asking of them now is like, okay, you want me to like Everything I say and do, you want me to cross-reference 9,000 things? And it's like, well, no. But at the same time, yes, because that's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> like, our level of self-interrogation is so high. Yeah. But I think that's just because of, like, hundreds of years of being socialized to be the right way in a room, you yeah. know, and to have the right sort of drag on, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I'm quite eager to talk about with this book is something that people who hate it come back to a lot, which is white privilege. Yeah. Um. I don't, I, where I stand on this is that the entire way through the book, she is exploring all these different cultures, whether it's Italian, Indian, or Indonesian. And at every juncture, she's very much like, I am outside of this and I observe it, I'm observing it from a journalistic point of view. Yeah. And I think she's very, and she never like pushes anybody under the bus or anything. She never goes for a cheap joke or anything. Even when she's like making cracks about how the Italians are to her, how the Indians are to her, it's coming from a place of deep respect and research. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I think where it gets murkier is when you get a white woman with a lot of money Uh 
which she deserves because she worked very hard, yeah. um, going into like somewhere like an ashram and, and borrowing from Hinduism or Buddhism and borrowing from different cultural traditions, do you think it's murkier there? Yeah, I guess, again, this plays at that question at the beginning about whether is it okay to kind of pick a religion or is it okay to for you to decide um, your approach to God and how you reach him? Is it okay to select different beliefs from different I, I I think that's a hugely hugely complex question that we probably need to do a whole podcast series on to yeah. begin to scratch the surface mm. um, I think the white privilege issue in this book is multi-layered you know as you say like on one hand she, she was an incredibly successful writer I didn't realise she'd been shortlisted you said for the National uh, Book Award the National yeah. Book Award um, and as a result for her next book she got paid this fat advance mm-hmm. which was what paid for the, her to go travelling around the world and, and also she had book. several books out that I assume she was accruing royalties on. Yeah, yeah. She, had, yeah. she, you know, she met David because he was acting in one of her plays. Yeah. You know, she was, but then there's the next layer. It's like, okay, but she's a, you know, a, a white woman who would have had different opportunities mm-hmm. and a different exposure. You know, there's so many layers of white privilege in this book that yeah. I think, yeah, I don't think it can be ignored. At the same time, though, white privilege is one of those things like any kind of privilege. Yeah. Because obviously everybody is working with different layers and different... Everyone's got a different privilege sandwich, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, That's a really nice way of looking at it. That's really nice. It feels reassuring. It's like, I have a privilege sandwich and I've got, like, I might have some ham in mine and, (laughs) you know, no no lettuce. And you've got the lettuce, but then I've got the pickle. Like, I like that thing of we're all coming at it from different places and we just need to be aware of what's in our sandwich and acknowledge it. That is so, wow. I said off the cuff, but you've really developed this idea for me. I I just... Yeah, no, I think we do, we, like... I think it, too often we mistake it as being one of these things where it's like, well, her sandwich is meatier than mine, therefore yeah. my sandwich doesn't exist. Yeah. Or well, she didn't have to pay for a sandwich. She got a sandwich for fucking free, <laughs> yeah. and I'm over here saving to get on the sandwich ladder. Totally. When yeah. it's all just different sandwiches, some of which have problems, you know. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know, I often find work. Okay, you know, I'm a I'm a white blonde lady, but also I'm Irish, so I get a weird treatment from the English sometimes, mm. and, and yeah. you know, everyone's got their whole. Different thing. Totally. Um, and also, once you have your sandwich, you can't apologize for it. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. You can be responsible with your sandwich. Yeah. You can be observant of other people's less good sandwiches. Yeah. But like, the, sometimes I get the notion that when people claim X privilege, whatever that privilege is, that it's a way of them telling the other person to stop doing what they're doing. Like, to almost like stop living at all, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because... If you're coming from a place of white female privilege and yeah. you acknowledge it all the way through your book and you research it thoroughly, does that, I think, you know, that's kind of yeah fine. You know, great. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's something that she's aware of. Um, I think it's something that she touches upon. I don't know. I, I agree. I think she does an immense amount of journalistic research behind all of the places, all of the different kind of belief systems and the cultures. And it never just feels like service either. It feels like something she's genuinely fascinated by. Him. Yeah. It's not like you know how people will just be like, and of course things are worse for women of colour. You know, when yeah. people just sort of like put these little segues in to like sort of show everyone that they're woke. Yeah. But she's genuinely fascinated by this. This is like heavy research. Totally. So I guess the Wyan, her and Wyan's relationship is an interesting one. So Wyan is a woman that she meets in Indonesia, in Bali, towards the end of her trip. And, you know, oh, yes, in yeah. Bali, if you kind of fall out of your marriage, then you're disconnected from the family and you're kind of not part of a tribe anymore and kind of you're completely then cast out of society. And so her and Wyan meet and, and their first conversation is about the fact that they're both divorced mm-hmm. and how painful and how sorrowful divorces are. And she kind of they both have this like emotional moment together. But um, the kind of their divorces and what's gone on in, in that relationship is completely different. Like Elizabeth um, hasn't been cast out of her society because she's a divorcee. Wyan has. You know, Wyan is a victim of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, Liz isn't. Liz is able to kind of have her own living. Wyan isn't. And there is a kind of, um, it is, as you say, kind of acknowledged mm-hmm. without her sort of saying it crassly. Yeah, it yeah. is acknowledged. Um, do you think it's complex that then she goes on to kind of fundraise to buy Wyanna house? It's very interesting, isn't it? So so as this this beautiful relationship with Wyan yeah. comes up. And also Wyan is like this like, incredibly noble person who yeah. um, you know, 
uh, is has adopted two children that aren't her own yeah. because they basically have nowhere to go. She's a skilled doctor. Yeah, really. she's a medicine woman. She, she's but, like solves her UTI. Yeah, yeah. She's a bit, but she can't buy a house, so she can't do anything. And, and, yeah, and, she has no mobility within her society. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so then what happens is that Liz basically goes to an internet cafe and writes a long email to all of her like very wealthy friends back in New York. Tells the story of Wyan. Says, you know, look, I'm not going to be home for my birthday this year. Anything uh, you would have come out for dinner with me. You would have done this. You would have spent $100 probably. Yeah. New Yorkers. Um, <laughs> so, you know, just can you please just raise it, help me raise this money for this be- beautiful woman. To help her buy a house for her and her kids. Yeah. And and they do. Yeah. They raise $18,000. Fuck. <laughs> which, yeah, when it's converted is like millions of the uh, Indonesian currency. But then a weird thing happens that I think you can tell Gilbert herself is uncomfortable writing about because it's the only time in the whole book where the prose slows down a bit yeah. where it loses that fluidity yeah, yeah, yeah. and she's like and then YN basically starts conning her a little is conning the right word? yeah um, where she's like I don't know essentially she's going um, they, they're looking at all these different plots of land and sort of YNs are dragging her feet and kind of trying to get more money out of Liz right. it seems okay I didn't pick that up it, that's kind of what the no, with, but maybe that's maybe that's what it, it, yeah. it is. And 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 she and she's like, oh, maybe if I had this much, I'd be able to buy that plot of land or kind of. And Liz is kind of like a little bit like, oh my god, like am I being conned here? But she's my best friend in this country, and yeah. blah, blah, blah. and then her um boyfriend Philippe says to her, look, this is just the Balinese. This is how, what they do. They'll she'll I can't remember word for word, but something like it's basically her job to con more out of you and your job to say no. And then she Liz figures that out and she's like basically puts her foot down yeah, with Wyatt. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then and then they buy a plot of land and everything's great. But it's yeah. like this weird, uncomfortable moment in the book. It's kind of like a grappling with the whole white savior idea, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and it's like And money between friends is complicated anyway. Yeah. You know, if I gave one of my best friends like here's twenty grand to help you yeah. get like that is complicated. It's you know Yeah. And oddly, actually, I, I read an interview from her um, a few years later where, like, someone's basically asking her, what's life like now that you're a millionaire? <laughs> and and she said, you know, it's been great because, like, I've had um, all all these friends I've been able to help and stuff. And, and But she also kind of says, like, but, you know, it's come with its own curse because sometimes I've just given people, like, huge amounts of money to go pursue what I think is their destiny. And that, then I had to realize that you can't, you can't like make people do things that you think is their destiny just because you've got lots of money yeah, you know yeah so and also like, maybe like money doesn't even enable you to reach your destiny that, that it's like so much so much I don't know yeah just to be financially set doesn't give you the freedom to just do what it is that you want to do you kind of have to be really determined you've got to work really hard yeah. and yeah, it's com- that's complicated, isn't it? Just, right. It feels like somebody kind of coming over to you and being like, here's all the money that you need to go and pursue your dream. And I like... Yeah. How, what does... would Yeah, what percentage of people would then actually go off and pursue their dream and what percentage would just pop down to Chanel and buy something <laughs> pretty? <laughs> I don't well, know. Well, weirdly, actually, I don't know, weirdly, maybe it makes complete sense, but, um, you know, Liz Gilbert's sort of personal life has taken a quite a turn in the last few years Yes, in that um, you know Philippe who she went on to marry it's not his real name I can't quite remember his real name um, but they announced that they were splitting up about two years ago mm-hmm. and uh, you know people were very sad because they were very invested in this relationship that she then explored more in her book Committed Yeah, um, and then she announced later that she was in love with her best friend yeah. a woman called Ray Elias yes. um, who was also dying of cancer Yeah, and then they got married and then she lived for another year or so and then I think she passed away about six or seven months ago. Yeah, she did. And she, Liz kind of looked after her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, and and Rhea was one of those people who apparently came to live in her house in New Jersey and she gave her some money and she wrote her book and released her book. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. But it's like, it's so interesting, isn't it? Like, it's such a strange and tragic but also kind of wonderful turn for, yeah. for this woman to just realise aged I think she's 50 or something yeah um, I've heard her talk about uh, Rayo actually on a yeah. TED uh, I heard podcast. that too yeah. you listen to that mm-hmm. and just I just ah, oh, it's fascinating I, lo- I love this idea that she was just madly in love with her best friend 
kind of I guess at first platonically and then it just kind of t- it sounds as if it just built and grew and it became something yeah. romantic yeah you know and 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 she talks about Rhea as this kind of most incredible person that she's ever met this dominating all-consuming force yeah. and I don't know the love between them also just sounds very pure but it's an interesting story and it almost sounds like it sounded like Rhea got sick and then they got together. Yeah. But I don't know whether that timeline sounded like that because of how she talked about it on the podcast. Maybe they were together for longer and it wasn't from announced. From what I've read from a combination of like podcasts, yeah. her Facebook thing, her Instagram, yeah. you know, there's a lot of Liz Gilbert to consume should you want to consume it. Yeah. Um, is like she realised she was going to lose her best friend and then she realised she couldn't be apart from her for a second more kind of thing. Yeah. Kind of like it sort of all sort of exploded in this like, oh my God, I love her so much, you know. And then But then they are together romantically. Yeah. Yeah. I know, Which right? Is yeah, I just think that transition of platonic love to romantic love in that intensity is just, I'm like, wow. All I want to know is more about that. Yeah. Right? How does that, what does that look like? How does that work? I'm write a book on that. I, I think that's just f- incredible. Especially as throughout all, she's a memoirist who's written two memoirs. Yeah. And lots of journalism that includes herself. She's never even hinted to being by curious no, or no, queer in any way no. and to decide age 50 after two marriages with men and countless relationships with men yeah. actually and I th- I totally subscribe to this idea that you you know I th- you know, think I could easily accidentally fall in love with a woman tomorrow I don't yeah. think that kind of um, the fluidity in that sense is what's shocking or interesting um, I think it's the fact that it's her best friend yeah so it's you know you, you're I just can't imagine. No, I know falling in love with my best friend in that way right? as much as I love her, and that idea that it's that that makes it so fascinating to yeah, me. And you and you and I both have very codependent relationships with our best friends. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's just I know. yeah, fascinating. But I'm sure we will sort of hear more. And 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 on that podcast, I love the way that she talks about ideas for writing books and how she believes that kind of ideas are in the <gasps> yeah. air and they're all around and and, and it's in a an idea sort of comes to you and you're the kind of vessel for it. You create it, but it's not something inside of you. It's not yours. The idea kind of comes and goes, okay, you can be the person to bring me into the world. Totally, But yeah. if you don't, if you're not curious and if you don't act on that and start, you know, carving away at bringing that idea into the world, the idea will leave you mm-hmm. and it will go to somebody else and somebody else will then write that book or write to- that TV script. And or- it's, it's not a metaphor. She completely believes it. She believes she's like, no, it this is, uh, when I say magic, I mean, because she, she wrote this book about creativity called Big Magic and yeah. she's like, no, I, I'm not being facetious. I, fi- I think this is literally magic and you yeah. can believe that or not believe that, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I, and I find that idea so fascinating now whenever I have an idea to do something, I'm like, oh, quick, you must yeah, do the idea the now. Idea. Or the idea will find another vessel, another conduit into this world. And we'll find it really stressful. But I just love that idea. And it's true that this, when you get an idea and it's nagging at you and you're sat out having dinner with friends or whatever, and it's just there in the back of your head, like, come on, come on, come on, yeah, come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just think that's such a great, it was a great, it's a good, whether it's literal or whether it's a really beautiful um, analogy, it's this idea that... Um, a really nice way of thinking about creativity, I think, and how ideas come to you and ask to be homed by you. And It's so lovely, isn't it? And it all comes from this initial TED Talk she did years ago, which was basically like, why do we associate depression and creativity so much? Why is it that like we talk about people being destroyed by their genius or all that? And it basically yeah. came from this whole way of thinking from people coming up to her and being like, how are you going to follow up, eat, pray, love? Oh, I miss everyone's, she's like, everyone was suddenly very worried for me all the time. And wow. she was like, you know, I was a writer for 20 years before that book and I liked the job then and I like it now. And, yeah. and, and that's what she stumbled on this idea of like, what if I'm not a genius but genius comes to you and yeah. it passes through you and then it leaves to somebody else, yes, you know? Yes, um, yes. Yeah. It's also a really nice idea in the sense of, you know, if you're, so say for example, writing books, if you're sat at home and you really want to write a book and you see all these people do it and you just think, God, I can never do that or they've done that now and it's not for me. Yeah. I, I think I love that Liz Gilbert idea because it's like, well, no, there's loads of these geniuses. There's loads of these international bestsellers. They're just floating around in the air <laughs> and all you've got to do is just ask just the, you know, one. yeah, hold your hands out to the universe and sort of be like, I I would like to do that and then work really hard and it could happen. I just, it makes that idea um, that anyone could have a, you know, Oscar winning movie or a number one bestseller or, you know, a, a hit record. Um, that it is, that it's around in the air for all of us to be the conduit. We just have to play ball and listen yeah. and receive 
and I just I just think that's really beautiful. It is beautiful. <laughs> it totally is. And do you find that in your career as a, a literary agent, this is like a a, a comfortable way for you to sort of. Uh, handle your talent like yeah. look you know your bestsellers out there just literally. Get, get your idea fishing net literally <laughs> I'm like the genius is literally floating around you've just gotta no I've never used that I don't think it would go down very well no. um, but yeah no it's a it's an interesting kind of tact to take in your own life I think with your own creative projects mm. it's hopeful I think so mm. To wrap up, I, I generally ask, you know, who would play who in a film, but it's already been made into a very bad film, which I watched last night, and it sucks. Um, but instead, I want to ask you, uh, what would your word be? <gasps> <laughs> no, so hard. So for listeners, there's an idea in Eat, Pray, Love that every single city on earth um, has a word and no matter what people are doing in that city if they're eating sleeping drinking or fucking they're, what they're actually doing is thinking about that word and in Rome it's sex and in like New York it's achieve in LA it's succeed and, um, and and basically if you want to live in that city you have to collaborate with that word everybody has their own word yeah what's like Abigail's Stockholm conform yeah <laughs> Stockholm is conform yeah and LA's and succeed yeah oh my god my word the first thing that came into my head which I think I meant not as it's I'm worried now that it makes me sound like full of myself <laughs> but uh, intense but in not in always a good way that was the first thing that came to my head like intense you are intense of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're quite full on and like full energy and people were like whoa it's intense person I think maybe that no, that's I don't, I, no I don't think that's um no I think that's completely fair okay yeah good I mean, what's yours what would be your word I think I think my word is the same as London's word okay. which is try try <laughs> I'm just always that's trying. a nice word. See, that's a really beautiful word. I think, it, it, like, I think it's, it can be both hopeful and they're like, just try. But yeah. also someone can be trying. Yeah. And that's London. Do yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. like anyone can make it, but also, God, you're a lot, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of like a, both of our words are very companionable, I think. Yeah, they are. <laughs> try, intense, intense and try. <laughs> Um, okay Abigail thank you so much for coming in is there anything you'd like to plug or talk about before we go Um, yeah just Gleam Titles which is the uh, literary agency that I work for at Gleam and you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Gleam Titles and see all the wonderful books that we've got coming anything in particular you're excited about (gasps) let's see um, Mrs Hinch's book which is coming this spring and also Gina Martin who's writing um, a book as well which I can't tell you what it is yet but Follow Gina. Stay tuned. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Sentimental Garbage. Tune in next week when we'll be talking to Julie Cohen about Virginia Andrews' Flowers in the Attic. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast produced by Hannah Verrill.